the Germans threw in two tear gas bombs. So I think it's safe to say that it all ended in tears. And welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast about Second World War, Prisoner War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And in this episode, we have an Australian by the name of Alan Frank McSwain, who was of the Royal Australian Air Force, flying with 115 Squadron, which is a Bomber Command Squadron. So we've done another Australian previously, which was Chisholm in episode 12 of our last series, series three. Yeah. And these two, I suspect, I haven't managed to get it confirmed, but I suspect they were together in training, because I've actually managed to find a reasonable amount on Alan pre-war, which is quite good. Good. So he was born in Sydney. He was one of three. In fact, he was the eldest of three children. He had a bit of an unfortunate upbringing in that I think his sister was killed in an accident and his mother died shortly afterwards. So he was actually, from a very early age, brought up by various other family members and helpers around the home and all this sort of thing. But he effectively he managed to get into high school and he then trained to be an accountant. And that's on his escape report as his pre, is, pre-war yeah. occupation. So he'd actually managed to get into business, despite his fairly young age. I mean, he was shot down just before his 23rd birthday, having already gone through training. So mm. he managed to get a year or two as a trained accountant in, in Australia. He'd also learnt to fly privately in Australia. So okay. he was already qualified. So he must have been doing okay. It was not a regular occurrence for many people to have been able to afford to have learnt to fly in the, in the 1930s. But he had got a private pilot's licence by the time that war was declared. So he enlisted in the Royal Australian Air Force in April of 1940, and he did some initial Air Force training in Australia. And then, just like Chisholm, he sailed to Canada under the Empire Air Training Scheme. Now, I covered that previously in quite great detail because there was a huge number of aircrew of you know navigators, engineers, gunners, all trained in Canada. Anybody who wants to have a, have a look at that, go back to Chisholm, episode 12 of Series 3. But Alan was also in that group. So he was one of the first alongside Chisholm to graduate from this uh, training scheme in Canada and he came to Great Britain in April of 1941 to complete his training and then was posted straight away to 115 Squadron Flying Wellingtons at Marham. Now, the night of his shootdown is effectively the 1st of July because it's the early hours of the morning having taken off the day before but he had actually managed to fly 14 operational missions between well not only April and July but actually he had to complete his training first so he was doing a mission every couple of weeks it's a busy time for a Wellington squadron in Bomber Command at mm-hmm. that point when you consider the amount of raids that were on weather etc etc so he's been thrown into this at the deep end but that takes us to the night of his shoot down and he actually gives a little bit of information in his report so he was one of a crew of six, effectively, on the Wellington. He says, I took off from Marham in Norfolk in a Wellington aircraft at about 2,300 hours to bomb Bremen. Just before we reached our target, we were hit by flak, and after leaving the target, we were attacked by two night fighters. We shot down a Heinkel, and we were also shot down ourselves. Very to the point, isn't it? Very matter of fact. Very yeah. matter of fact. We shot down someone else, and then someone else got us. I gave the order to bail out and came down myself in the backyard of a farmhouse. I had lost my firing boots in bailing out and I destroyed my parachute and May West immediately after landing. So, regular practice, try and remove the fact that you were in the area. While I was waiting in the farmyard, a German came up 
on a bicycle and went into the house. Now, I think this is an amazing point because we love a bit of bicycle action. We love a bit of bicycle theft. And this is probably the earliest opportunity we've seen to get bicycle theft into it, a... This this guy's not hanging around, is he? he? He's not hanging out. As, as we will see from the rest of his escape career because he is a... He very much started as he meant to go on. He did, yes. We'll leave it there. So he says, I got on his bicycle and cycled for the rest of the night in a southerly direction. So he's been shot down for a matter of minutes and has seen a German arrive at a farmyard on a bike, go into the farmhouse, and he's pinched it. So I think that is wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. So he goes on to write that during the next day he hid up. At night he continued cycling and bypassed Bremen. So assumingly within a couple of days he had already was on his way back. Or at least trying to. So I said earlier he started as he meant to go on mm. and he really did start as he meant to go on because instantly he's on the lookout for a way home because he states I passed the fighter station of Messerschmitt's I spent the day hiding and watching the aircraft and noticed one isolated plane on the boundary of the aerodrome. When it was dark, I crawled into the field and ran up to the plane. I got in and tried unsuccessfully to get it up. The ground crew, who must have heard the engine ticking over, came and took me prisoner. I mean, if you're going to get captured, that's how to do it. Yeah, and I mean, there's a number of things that, again, he mentions in a sort of very throwaway format here. I mean, we've covered previously in many stories and comics of war and all this sort of stuff, this thought of trying to steal an aerodrome plane to get home as quickly as possible but it's very rare to actually find cases of it i think we did have one previously when we were looking at a factory that they'd put dogs in the airplanes to alert the ground crew the interesting point about that that particular paragraph is that he mentions that the ground crew must have heard the engine running so he got the airplane started now that is that is interesting because i'm not aware so much that many crews had training in the operation of or at least the understanding of technical german as to what was required yes you can to a great extent have a guess at what is what but particularly with the german airplanes that wanted to be too technical there's an awful lot of complicated fuel systems on some of these german airplanes not like some of the british ones and therefore whilst you're in a twin engine airplane as he's mentioned trying to get you're going to have double everything so you've got a rough idea that if you've got to switch something on you switch something on that's marked the same it's a complex airplane the messerschmitt 110 that's what he was trying to steal and he managed to get that running so he had a good old crack Mm -hmm. Uh, trying to get this aeroplane going Um, and I think that's marvellous I would love to know more I I love his spirit his spirit is fantastic (laughs) one of our earliest records I think of somebody trying to steal an aeroplane to come home well we're literally still within the first 24 hours after him being shot down he's already stolen a bike and tried to steal a Messerschmitt 110 and got himself captured in the process of doing so so kudos yeah (laughs) I did want to pick up one other point though actually which is so far as we know and we certainly haven't covered anyone yet, but as far as we know, no one actually succeeded in escaping by stealing an enemy plane. However, because of that, we've never actually considered the challenges of trying to land an enemy plane, albeit flown by an ally, in the UK. True. Surely that would have woken up some defensive systems. Well, so we obviously had something called identification friend or throw, which was a set of lights that would be effectively flashed in certain orders for whatever the colours of the day or flares and all that sort of thing. Now, those would have changed regularly. He would not have been aware of what would have had to have been flashed. However, if I've been in that situation and I've seen things written previously, I think Tommy Cowan in his book... Free he, as a running fox. That's exactly 
good one. He mentions a little bit about what he would have done. So effectively, if he was coming back in at night, he would have put all the lights on on the aeroplane because somebody sees something come on the radar, I think it's German, they wouldn't be flying along with the lights on. So that would have probably been one of the way. Yes, he would have bound to have taken some directed anti-aircraft fire or something like that. But again, if it was the daytime, and there are cases of we captured Bocker Wolf 190 that landed in Wales after combat over Cornwall, got disorientated, had crossed over Bristol Channel, effectively thinking it was the English Channel, and did a pass at the airfield and landed, and uh, he was taken prisoner with a flare pistol because they didn't actually have any armament on the RAF base because it was a training base. So, you know, it was known that that it has happened but I think if push came to shove even if he just bailed out over the UK it would have been sufficient to get him home so it was theoretically possible so having been captured trying to steal a message from it 110 mm. great effort great effort he was taken to the guardroom of the aerodrome and then from there he was taken immediately to Marlag now Marlag was actually a naval camp Okay. And it's interesting that he wasn't actually taken straight to Dulagluft as would have been standard practice. Particularly at that time, Dulagluft was getting big. And for a pilot as well. Yeah. I can only assume it's because it was in the vicinity and therefore was just convenient, whether it was towards the end of the day and just not enough time to get him to Dulag or just to hold him for the night or something like that. But that's the only assumption I can make because Mm -hmm. otherwise they would have been taken to Dulagluft, not to Marlag. And it was there that he had his initial interrogation, where he says, I was asked many questions but refused to give any answers beyond my number, rank and name, which is, of course, pretty standard standard practice. The interrogation itself seems to have been fairly brief while in Marlag, but he does say, When my interrogator realised that he was not going to get any information from me, he went out of the room and returned saying that if I had nothing to tell him, he had something to tell me. Slightly ominous. It does sound a bit ominous, but in actual fact, I mean, it's still not great, but it's not quite as bad as it sounds. Hmm. He read from a piece of paper exact details of our aircraft crew Operation Squadron and Squadron Commander's name. I think it is possible that he got this information from my rear gunner who was delirious. He had received a flesh wound in the aircraft and after bailing out had landed on the tree and broken his back. I was told by the Germans that he had died two days later. So it's not beyond the realms of possibility that whether in delirium of pain or even morphine, under even. extreme painkillers such as morphine, yeah, that he's just spouted forth all this information. I have come across that in Dulag Luft actually. An individual that I've researched quite a lot had some of his information given away by a colleague who was on the operating table and spilled some of the beans, so it's not unheard of. And so that same afternoon he was taken by car to Hamburg and then almost immediately he was then taken on to Dulaglo. So it does suggest he was just there to tide him over to keep him... Under lock and key. Under lock and key. And it's at Dulaglo that the real interrogations really start kicking in where he states, I was stripped and put in a cold cell while my clothes were searched. I did not receive any direct interrogation here but a seemingly friendly chat with one of the officers. Now I would still include that as interrogation even if it isn't light bulb in the face, Gestapo-esque interrogation and actually as we've seen so many times before that seems to have been the main approach at Dulag Luft was one of friendliness and welcoming and that wonderful red cross form that kept on appearing across many escapes as well as, well as beer I believe there were several hostelries in the woods that they were taken to on turn and fed beer to see if it freed up their tongue somewhat. But that would not have worked on me. Uh, no, it would not have worked on you, not Dave. Have no, me. It would not have worked on me. Not unless they were serving a good single malt whiskey. <laughs> I doubt it in wartime. <laughs> so do wartime I. Wartime <laughs> central Germany. Yeah. And in actual fact, we almost immediately see 
another of these techniques that they used in Dulag, where he says that this seemingly friendly chat included conversation about German and British aircraft, passing remarks that were obviously wrong, hoping that I would correct him. Mm-hmm. Well, we've seen that before as well. Yes. But after only about two hours, he was sent to the main cap. Now, that's relatively quick. Usually, they're kept in... Yeah, isolation for a couple of days. Yeah, and and the the average seems to have been ten days to two weeks in Dulag Luft. If you were there for longer than three weeks, they were definitely after something out of you. But yeah, that's that's a particularly quick move. While in the main camp, he was taken into a room with a microphone. He says, although he couldn't find any trace himself, he was warned about it by other prisoners of war who were in the main camp with him. And he also says that there were undoubtedly stool pigeons in this time. They were generally dressed as sergeants and spoke perfect English, but invariably disappeared after three or four days. Now, what I find interesting about that is we know that Dulag. Luft had a permanent POW staff. It did, yes. Whereby allied servicemen were just kept there permanently to keep administration taking over, essentially. Mm. So they must have known who the stool pigeons were, because they must have been suspicious by the same faces turning up for three or four days at a time, and then coming going and going, again. speaking perfect English. So it can't have been that good a ruse if you were going to keep permanent staff there who would instantly recognise who your plans mm. were. Nonetheless, didn't stop them, keep doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And again, his stay in Dulaglov wasn't particularly long because on the 9th of July, he was sent off to Oflag 9A at Spangenberg. Now, that's only a week after he arrived there on the 2nd of July. So really not long at all to stay there. And he was to stay at Spangenberg for only three months until the camp was broken up. Nonetheless, in that three months, he managed to make his first escape attempt. Good. Assuming you don't include Include the plane. Because technically that's that's an evasion. Yes, I I was just thinking about jumping on it and now you're right. It was one attempt at getting home from evasion. It's easy to lose track with this guy. He makes so many. So this first escape attempt, he states squadron leader Svensson who was of the Royal New Zealand Air Force, and I fixed a rope from a gate on the castle wall that we had climbed over to the side of the drawbridge. We crawled along this over the moat. Unfortunately, although we'd purposely chosen a rainy night, the sentry came out of his box, I think to spit in the moat, and saw Svensson. I was also caught by a German, but I managed to break away and get back to my bed. Impress it. So from being at the moat, he managed to get away and get back into the castle and get into bed. Exactly, without being caught. However, Svensson was caught and got seven days in the cell for this. Now, we've seen longer punishments than that for being captured during an escape. But McSwain has managed to avoid all punishment completely by managing to get back to his bed. So well done him. (laughs) So his first escape attempt was unsuccessful, but... Technically, he was out of the camp, would you say? He got out of the castle. I suppose technically, yes, by virtue of the fact that they had climbed over the side of the drawbridge. I think they are on the outside of the outer wall, and therefore technically outside of the camp. But we're talking about feet. Yes, okay. (laughs) They have not got very far. (laughs) No, no. From there, he was sent to Oflag 6B at Dursel and was to stay there from the beginning of October 1941 until the 14th of September the following year. So just shy of a year there. And while he was at Dursel, he was to make a number of escape attempts. Indeed. In fact, arguably the vast majority of them. So while he was in Dursel, he was to make seven escape attempts. And it has to be said, seven escape attempts in just under a year is actually quite impressive. Mm. So five of them were to be tunnel schemes. And unfortunately, 
apparently all of them were discovered before completion during routine inspections. And he does say that he doesn't think any of them had been given away by a stool pigeon or a betrayal or anything like that. Just, they just unfortunate, things. unfortunately found. So that that's five of them, and there's not too much detail to really go on there. Okay. He goes on to say that he made another attempt by cutting the wire, but was again caught in the process and given five days in the cells. Again, quite a lenient punishment. We've certainly seen up to 21, even 28 days for being captured. So five days isn't that many. And he'd made the wire cutters himself from the bars of a grate. And they'd been welded down, riveted together. Now you see, that always fascinates me. How on earth, within a camp, did he manage to not only steal the grate, but get them welded and riveted in the camp? Now, I'm not going to lie, I was going to turn to you as the engineer for the answer on that one, not not me. This is it. I can understand. I mean, you know, the process of riveting, cold riveting, not great, but possible, hot riveting. I could see that potentially they might be able to do something involving stoves and things like that. But welding, welding is a phenomenal temperature, not one that you're going to get on a stove. We have seen this sort of level of ingenuity and determination before. We we certainly have. We certainly have. I mean, I've seen in cold it's the, the wooden sewing machine and stuff like this that is just a work of art mm-hmm. it really is so don't get me wrong hats off to them completely but if, if you challenge me to be in a hut in a field and weld something together I would fail I'm sure we have certainly seen already that McSwain definitely falls within the category of determined <laughs> yes <laughs> and opportunist <laughs> and full of ingenuity <laughs> yeah absolutely yes hats off that they managed to get this done yeah I, I was impressed by that too and then the seventh and final escape attempt he was to make from this camp, (laughs) just this camp, was when he tried to get out in the back of the laundry cart and hid himself in a basket. He'd arranged with another man to talk to the driver in order to distract his attention while he was getting in. Unfortunately, the sentry, who did not always search the laundry cart, did on this occasion and discovered him at the gate, which, again, is just bad luck. It's like the routine searches for the tunnels. Yeah, protocol. So from there, he was then sent in September 1942 to O-Flag 21B at Schubin. So while at Schubin, he was engaged on four further tunnel escapes. Wow. So that's already nine tunnel escapes he's made by September 1942, having only been captured in July 41. Yeah. And of those four tunnel escapes, only one was actually successfully completed. Now, he says, We completed this tunnel in five months, but the German suspicions were aroused, and although they could not locate it, they knew of its existence. They had extra floodlights, two extra guards on duty, and even placed mines between the wires and the huts. These they let off occasionally. Now, that's not common, is it? That's not common at all. You would have and the, you'd highly have the, dangerous. You would have the inner and outer wire, wouldn't you? So you had the outer wire and inner wire, both of which which would be 10, 12 feet high, topped with barbed wire, and would have maybe five feet between them. Yeah. And then you'd have what was called the trip wire, which was usually about 20 feet back from the inner of the two outer wires. Yeah. You could cross it with permission from a sentry if you wanted to collect a football that had rolled over or something like that. Yeah. But you had to alert them that you were crossing to get it. They would keep a close eye on you. It was called the trip wire for a reason. Yes. If you crossed it intentionally, you would be shot at. But in this case, they mined the area. They mined the area. Yeah, that's quite serious. That is, and as you say, not particularly common and, of course, highly dangerous. And in fact, because of that, the senior British officer, Wing Commander Harry Day... There's a name. There's a name. ...forbade this tunnel scheme to be put into operation precisely because of the possible loss of life it would involve. So of those four tunnel schemes that he was involved in, one did get to completion but was so dangerous and they couldn't risk setting off the mines while going through the tunnel that it was actually banned Mm. from being used 
released by the senior British officer. Now, the camp broke up in April 1943, and in fact, when it was announced that that would be happening, it was decided to let two people seal themselves down in the tunnel and wait for their opportunity to get away. Which isn't the worst use of resources, because of course you don't need to necessarily go in to the tunnel as far as where the mines were. Correct, yeah. But in this case, McSwain does state he didn't think there was much chance of the scheme succeeding, and as it turned out, the two who remained behind were caught. I mean, you've got issues over air, you know, fresh air in particular. You're not going to be able to spend more. I mean, as we've seen you know, for the diggers in the Great Escape, they had to have air pumps down there, mm-hmm. one because of the length, but also because they're having to work. But even if you've got a long tunnel, you're going to have it goes hours very worth quickly. Of, yeah, air, not days. And of course, access to water and all also the relieving of oneself too. Correct. So I stated that the camp broke up in April 1943. Now this is interesting because all of the prisoners that were held in Schubin were sent directly to a camp called Stalagluf 3. Which we've definitely heard of we've before. We've definitely heard of before. And this included a number of the key players in The Great Escape. So several who would go on to make a name for themselves in The Great Escape and other escapes from the style of three went through Shubin at this time and were transferred in April 43 with McSwain. So some notable prisoners who went through Shubin and would go on to make a name for themselves one way or another mm-hmm. include Anthony Barber. Ah, now I know him as a PRU pilot and many listeners of a certain age would also have known him as a very prominent member of the government at one point. Yes, he, he rose to be Chancellor of the Exchequer. So arguably the second most senior position in the British government. Per Bergsland, who was one of the three who actually succeeded in escaping from the Great Escape. Jimmy Buckley, also of the Great Escape. Wing Commander Harry Day, we've already mentioned. Johnny Dodge, Jimmy James, and not connected to the Great Escape, but also relatively famous prisoners of war who went through this camp were Leonard Cheshire and, of course, Oliver Philpott and Eric Williams, both of whom escaped in The Wooden Horse, which featured in our first ever two episodes. That's right. So a number of well-known prisoners of war and escapers Mm. were to go through this camp and even to go from this camp to Style of Three and while in Style of Three make something of a name for themselves. Indeed, well put. So he arrived in Stalouf 3 in April 1943. And before he'd even arrived, he decided to change his identity with that of another rank, hoping that he'd get transferred, as he thought there was little chance of getting out of Stalouf 3. Now, he may have had a point, but also arguably most famously, there was a very great chance of getting out of Stalouf 3 because they got 76 out in one go. Yes. So he's both right and wrong in that statement, but he pursued his hunch to the end. In this instance, we don't actually know which part of the camp. No, we don't know which compound. Because obviously the Great Escape was occurring from the North Compound. And I think at that time, the East Compound had been cleared and was being built. So it might have been that he could have gone completely into a different part of the camp because there was so much expansion going on Mm -hmm. there and so many people being moved around. And indeed, actually, before the Great Escape, a lot of the Americans that were in the north part of the camp were then put in their own separate part of the camp. So it was his estimation that there was little chance of getting out of Stadler 3. Now, he wasn't entirely wrong, because, of course, it was a high-security prison, which instigated a number of the security measures that were being developed at this time. Nonetheless, he did go ahead with his change of identity in the hope of being transferred. And he states, while still in Schubin, I got in touch with a private John McDermott 
part of the Seaforth Highlanders with the aim of changing our identities. We'd obtain two blank identity cards and each put our fingerprints on them and change cards with each other. These cards then bore our names and particulars but no photographs. We changed identities on the train while the camp was being transferred. As we entered the camp we had put our fingerprints on a new identity card and while waiting for papers to be found I managed to substitute my faked identity card and conceal the ones that were being made for me. That's marvellous but that sounds mostly luck in that situation. They've been very good to get hold of the cards but they've used an opportunity of that transfer to pass it off. And a sleight of hand by yes. the sounds of it too. And even then having changed identity his plan was still to be transferred out of the camp which was easier said than done but he had a plan for that too which I quite enjoyed actually because it was a degree of belligerence that I think also comes out in his personality <laughs> that made this happen. So, for three months I worked as an orderly. Whenever there was any particular menial or unpleasant job, I always volunteered for it. Then, after a few hours' work, I would throw down my tools and refuse to carry on. In this way, I soon became well-known to the Germans as a nuisance and was frequently punished. Now, when I first read that, I thought, it's not a particularly good ruse if you're wanting to escape to become well-known to the Germans as a problem, because they then know your face. Mm. It becomes harder to pass yourself off as one of the crowd. However, the senior British officer, Group Captain Kellett, knew that I was trying to get transferred by this means. He therefore suggested to the German commandant that as I would not work properly and was useless to the British, it was better if I was moved to another camp. This took three months to accomplish. Okay. So it's three months of steady belligerence, being stubborn and difficult, that eventually got himself transferred out of Stalbuf 3. So while he was in arguably the most famous of escaping camps, that and Colditz, he made no escape attempts whatsoever while there. Yeah. Which for someone who'd made 12 already by this point... In just over a year, effectively. Yeah. Yeah, just under one a month. Really. It's quite an impressive degree of self-control, actually. Yeah. So he was moved on from Stalag 3 to Stalag 8B, which is Lambsdorff. Now, we have come across Lambsdorff a Certainly. lot. yes. And having been moved there in July 1943, he says, about 2,000 of us were put in chains each day as a reprisal against the shackling of Germans at Dieppe. Now, we have covered that a number of times as well, including most recently in de Grange's episode. However, I return to my point earlier about prisoner of war ingenuity and the determination to escape. Because he says, Each morning handcuffs were issued and we appeared on parade with them on. We found an easy way of prizing the lock open and took them off during that day. At night we put them back on again and they were taken off officially. So although they were technically <laughs> handcuffed... <laughs> That's brilliant. As we've seen on a number of occasions, it didn't usually take prisoners of war too long to work out how to pick a lock. And evidently, that is precisely what's happened. So they turn up on morning parades with the handcuffs off they're then officially put on they then go back to their room take them off spend the entire day with them off put them back on at the end of the day go back on parade and have them taken off again brilliant so it's superb but also i love the fact that the germans never picked up on this <laughs> And again, having managed a degree of self-control throughout his time at Stalwell 3, he is instantly on the lookout for escape opportunities. Because he says, For the first week, I kept quiet, kept my head down, and went out with a working party digging potatoes. There were very few guards about him with very little preparation that was able to walk out of the camp. So he actually was only there for about a week. What a throwaway comment. I know. Again, I walked out. So having just got up and walked out of the camp, with very little preparation, as he says, the next day he contacted some Polish workmen. And these Polish workmen gave him a bicycle. So no need for theft. Oh, I mean, we've we've had opportunity, we've had bicycles offered to be loaned, mm -hmm. and yet with no way of getting it back. Mm -hmm. 
we've had lots of theft. But, Definitely. Uh, the gift of a bicycle. Yeah, don't think we've come across no, that before. No, I know, that's a new one. Or if we have, not often. No. Unsurprisingly, he took it, of course, and made his way towards Danzig, stopping just outside of Danzig and walking the last part of the way. And he says he knew the route well as he had maps in the camp and had taken with him some food and money. Now... Danzig is about 500-530 kilometres away from Lambsdorff and he's managed to travel there in around about five days so he's travelling about 100 kilometres per night pretty good and he's gone pretty well he cycled only at night and slept during the day in the open do we know if there was much in the way of curfews in place at the time? certainly would have been at somewhere like Danzig because mm. it's a port isn't it Danzig combination of it being a city and a port it would mm. have definitely had the curfew I would imagine there would have been curfews in towns and villages as well that were locally administrated on his first night in Danzig he made his way down to the quay and got onto a small Swedish boat hiding in the coal bunker. The boat had already pulled away from the wharves. The Germans threw in two tear gas bombs so I think it's safe to say that it all ended in tears. Oh David, good God. (laughs) So having been recaptured in Danzig, he was immediately sent back to Lambsdorff where he stated that his name was Private Smith. Not a particularly original lie to claim your name is Smith but seemed to have worked because he didn't receive any punishment at all and they didn't find out his identity had been switched either so he continued under the name of McDermott. Okay. Now, there were several escape committees in Lambsdorff and it seems that McSwain had no time for any of them because he states that none of them were functioning properly. So he was critiquing other people's attempts. Exactly. He reached consultancy level of escaping and was now giving critique of other efforts. Well, if he's now at 13 of his own, I suppose that's fairly justified. Yes, pretty experienced escaper by this stage and so he teams up with two other prisoners that he'd met in Stalgoth 3 Sergeant Major McLean and Sergeant Pals both of whom were Canadians and upon his return to Lambsdorff he contacted them and the three of them started their own escape committee Ooh, to set up your own escape committee yeah outside the accepted and established escape committee but also outside the structure of discipline that existed because presumably at least one of the others would have been set up by whoever the senior man of conference was in the Mm. camp. However, he did tell these two his true identity and the reason why he'd changed his identity. And they also brought on a private Lohenstein, who was a German Jew who'd been sent out of Danzig at the time of the German purge. And he joined their escape committee as well. Now, McLean and Pals had already completed a tunnel which ran from one of the blocks to about 20 feet outside the camp and were waiting for someone to use as a test case. Now, it sounds suspiciously like McSwain was volunteering to be... A test case. Yeah, exactly, the guinea pig here. And lo and behold, it was decided that he should travel through Germany as a French workman who'd been declared medically unfit for further work in Germany. He spoke enough German for a foreigner but no French, which is, makes travelling as a French workman an interesting ruse. Uh, challenging. Yes. yes. Nonetheless, it was decided that driver Williamson, who was a New Zealander in the Royal Army Service Corps, should accompany him. Now, interestingly, he states that Williamson was not particularly keen to escape attempt, but he spoke fluent German and had a good deal of experience of German railways from his pre-war days. Ooh. No further info on that? Nothing further on that, but I thought it was interesting that there was a mention in an escape report of someone who was not keen on attempting escape so that doesn't come up too often although we know it to be widespread is probably the wrong word but i mean we've covered before that the percentage of prisoners who did escape or were involved in escaping is a small percentage of all the total ones that were incarcerated so yes not untypical but as you say rare to see it mentioned in a report but usually when it is mentioned in the report that someone was unwilling to escape it's usually in the context of perhaps a change of identity because they've got no intention of going out they don't mind their identity being used 
it's far less common to see someone who isn't keen on escape escaping. Yes. So over the next couple of weeks, McSwain and Lowenstein started preparing all the various papers and letters and paraphernalia that you need for escaping. So between them, they forged a medical certificate supposedly from the chief German doctor at Blechhammer, stating that he was suffering from tuberculosis of the larynx and was unfit for further duty, and was due to be sent back to France for recuperation. Now that would get past the challenge of not being able to speak French. It would. Good thinking. Mm, quite a smart illness to have. Mm. And in addition to this, they both had four other sets of papers. A French identity card, an Urleibschein, a temporary Ausweis, and a letter from the German Wehrmacht officials. Now that's nine pieces of paperwork that they've had to prepare. Which would also all have to have been dated to match and make sense. Forged, stamped, the works. Correct. It's a lot of work. Yes, it is, and unsurprisingly, it took them about six weeks to complete. So, to his escape. On the 19th of September, they went down this tunnel at 1300 hours and came out about 30 yards beyond the sentry. It had been arranged for someone to distract the sentry's attention at the time they were due to come up. He was dressed in a pair of brown trousers, a brown double-breasted coat, and carried a small attache case, which can't have been easy to get through a tunnel. No. And Williamson had on a pair of plus fours, a blackish coloured coat, and also carried a small case. On top of that, they also had 400 marks, three pounds of chocolate, two pounds of biscuits, one pound of cheese, and some Horlicks and Ovaltine tablets. So some of the money they had obtained from the escape committee, and the rest they got by selling chocolate and cigarettes to the Germans, which shows that the Red Cross resources that were sent in, which is where, of course where they got chocolate and cigarettes, were being put to use for escape purposes. Yeah. Indirectly, admittedly, but that's how they managed to obtain some of the 400 marks that they took with them. So having got out, they walked to Lambsdorff Station and bought a ticket to Breslau, which is pretty much due north, and is now Rocklov. Having got to Breslau, they changed for the Krakow to Berlin Express. Now, there were several paper checks on the train, including one where members of the Gestapo got on at each end of the train and worked their way through to the middle, which would negate some of the efforts to avoid detection on trains that we've seen before, such as de Grange, who Hang out the side. clung to the side of a moving train. He arrived in Berlin at 2200 hours, so only nine hours after the end of the tunnel, he's already reached Berlin, which is 330 kilometres away oh, from going. Lambsdorff. Really good going. And due to late nature of their arrival, he found that there were no trains until the following morning. They therefore spent the night in Berlin. Which always strikes me as amazing. Yeah. If you think of Berlin being the centre. Absolute epicentre of Nazi Germany. <laughs> at that time. The very definition of it. <laughs> and you go and spend the night there. That's, to me, incredible. It's fantastic, isn't it? Entirely in keeping with his personality, I feel. True. I mean, in practical terms, though, of the main fast train lines, the network actually almost all passes through Berlin. So in a way, it's not that surprising mm -hmm. if you want to get to the northern ports. There is no direct line. It all went into Berlin and out again. Particularly if you were coming from somewhere like what is now Poland mm -hmm. and Stalagloff III and a lot of the prison camps that were down there, everything went back into Germany before it would head out of Germany. So in a way, unsurprising, but also ballsy, mm -hmm. for want of a better word. But also I think what's different here is that he's escaped in the middle of the day, whereas most tunnel escapes tended to be at night mm -hmm. for the cover of darkness, but he's escaped at one in the afternoon. But the net result of that is that he's arriving in Berlin at night. 
Whereas if you've escaped overnight, you're then getting the early morning train. You're then arriving in Berlin, say, mid-afternoon. Yeah. You've then got time to move on. So he's taken both the gutsy, the gutsier approach of escaping in the middle of the day, but also the net impact of that is that he hasn't got the option of taking the connecting train once he's arrived in Berlin. So he has to stay in the hotel or find alternative accommodation. Now, in this occasion, he does stay in a hotel. And he says, there were several hotels in the street and we tried three before we found one that had vacant accommodation for us. Our papers were carefully examined when we arrived and we later heard that there was a police check at 0800 hours the next morning. We therefore left at 0600 hours and took the metro to the train station. Wise. Get out before. Very wise, but again shows the importance of having money, not just in the ability to stay overnight in a hotel in the middle of Berlin, mm. but also being able to take the metro to and from the train station. It's the small details that were making the difference here. Yeah. At 10 o'clock that morning, so we're now talking the morning of the 20th of September, so it's still less than 24 hours since he entered the tunnel. Amazing. Not just less than 24 hours since he escaped, but 24 hours since he entered the tunnel, because he doesn't tell us what time he escaped. He says that he entered the tunnel at 1300 right. hours. Yeah. So less than 24 hours after he entered the tunnel, he caught a train to Mannheim, passing through, amongst others, Frankfurt. Now at Frankfurt, he had a meal at the station restaurant consisting of soup, a vegetable dish and ersatz coffee which they bought without surrendering food coupons and they arrived at Mannheim at 10 o'clock that evening now that is a further 550 kilometers from berlin so we're talking about nearly 900 kilometers by 10 o'clock the next evening 36 hours 36 hours after entering the tunnel however unlike in berlin it was impossible to find any rooms and they slept the night in a very crowded air raid shelter. He then states that the following morning he walked around the town looking at the damage which was very considerable. Although it was about two weeks after the first big raid on the city there were no trams running and the debris was about one story high in many places. Now that read to me like the pilot of a bomber wandering around a major city sightseeing. Indeed. Even admiring his own work you might say. The other thing that's just struck me, sorry about this to go back a little bit there, I was thinking sleeping in a busy air raid shelter Probably not a bad idea because mm -hmm. it's unlikely they would carry out paperwork checks in an air raid in an air raid shelter. I wonder if you talked in your sleep. Can yes. you imagine sleeping in an air raid shelter? As he said, crowded air raid shelter. And if you were having a bad dream and spoken in sleep, you would presumably speak in English. Yes. And there are some who talk about drifting off on a train and shouting out in English. During. Really? It was easier to avoid conversation, of course, but it was always a risk. Yeah. So having admired the RAF's handiwork, he left at midday on the 21st of September for Saarbrücken, which is a further 120 kilometres, and we're now very close to the French border. Yeah. From some Frenchmen that he travelled with, he learned that there was a French working camp at Forbach, which is a little bit further south, still near the French border, but close to Strasbourg. And in this camp, they'd been told that there was very pro-British sympathies. And so they reached the camp that night and were told that they'd be guided across the frontier in two days. However, an Italian who was due to take them across refused to do so in the end. Now, at first, the mention of an Italian did raise a bit of a red flag. Mm. But then I looked at the date and we're talking about the 21st, 22nd of September 1943. I see. So technically, the Italians were now allies of the British. But we're talking about only for about a week or so. So that might explain why theoretical ally was refusing to help. He may have been caught between loyalties. Yes. On the 24th of September, a Frenchman in the camp said that he'd take him across himself. This Frenchman took them to Metz and then spent two days trying to find them a guide. So they are now into France. Yeah. And so on the night of the 26th, he then took a train. 
On the 26th of September, they moved on and their guide, to whom they had each given 50 marks, took them to a small hotel belonging to his father, where they stayed overnight and in the morning when they were woken early, told that the Germans were carrying out periodic searches of all the houses in the village. They therefore took a bus to the next village and spent a further two hours in a cafe waiting for a train. At the station, they found that the German police were examining all passengers going onto the platform. They therefore bribed a French railway official to take them round by the goods yard, so they entered the train station via the workman's entrance, if you like. Like it, yeah. And in doing so, they then boarded the train from the wrong side. So they opened up the carriage from mm. the other side and entered. This then took them to Lunaville, where their helper from Forbach left them in a cafe while he went to find a friend. He returned with his friend and they spent four days at his house. The report finishes by stating, from this point, our journey was arranged for us. Now, we have come across that phrase before. We have. And it is usually an indicator of they joined an evasion line. Now, we know that MI9 ran a number of evasion lines through occupied Europe, mm-hmm. some that ran from Belgium, Netherlands through France into Spain, and others that ran just from France itself into Spain as well. From the geographical location of where he met up with them, it is most likely that he joined the Pat O'Leary line. Ah, yes. Now, this was the MI9 escape line which ran through Marseille, down to Perpignan, over the Pyrenees and through Spain to Gibraltar. Now, he'd reached Lunaville, which is, you know, we're talking about around about a thousand kilometres away from Lambsdorff, less than 10 days after escaping from the camp. That's good going. And while there isn't any real detail of his journey from Lunaville to Gibraltar, we do know that he eventually left Gibraltar on the 20th of December, three months after leaving the camp, and would land at Whitchurch on the 21st of December, 1943, just in time for Christmas. Lovely. Yes, yeah, so a prolific escaper. I think by my count there, that's 14 escape attempts, of which three he managed to get outside of the camp. If only by a couple of feet. If only by a couple of feet, and not including the first attempt, which was the evasion of stealing the aeroplane to get back. So I think this, this guy would be certainly worthy of an award, which he was awarded. Good. Because... In this instance, and it's a fairly rare one, but we've actually managed to find quite a bit on Alan's post-escape career, particularly even within the Air Force during the war, and then actually onwards post-war. So actually, yes, it was worthy of a reward because he was awarded the Military Cross in May of 1944 for his resourcefulness and determination to escape, which I think is an understatement in this. And and certainly a personality trait that we picked up on in abundance in that escape. In in abundance. Interestingly, it mentions that for security reasons, the award was publicised with a vague reference to gallant and distinguished service. Okay. Which is possibly, the reference that I've got is back in an Australian newspaper. So not the Gazette entry, as we would be used to for looking for citations and things, but this is actually reported back in Australia. Now, he didn't appear to have actually done any more operational flying over enemy territory. What I did find is that he got back, he got married to a WAF, and he then went through some refresher training, because of course he hasn't flown for several years, and he became a squadron leader in the July of 1944, and an instructor at 105 Operational Training Unit in Nottinghamshire. Now, what I love is I love character references. Mm. Um, And as part of this, uh, his refresher training, he's referred to as having strong character and above average ability, and that he displayed utmost patience, particularly when dealing with backward students. 
So that's lovely. So <laughs> both the sign of potentially some of the uh, the crews that were coming through post D-Day for training and also a little bit on how he handled people. But at the end of the war, so July 1945, after victory in Europe, uh, he was awarded the Air Force Cross. But then, as I said, we managed to find some interesting post-war history. So he returned to Australia in 1946 and was discharged from the, the military services thereafter. But he went to the airlines, as many ex-air crew did, and he went to Trans Australia. Australia Airlines, where he became the Queensland manager, and ultimately he then went on to get Queen's Coronation Medal. He ended up moving into business, where he became started a motor dealership in New South Wales, and then he held senior roles with American Machine and Foundry, and he ultimately managed its Melbourne base sales office. For, for manufacture so it's got down here that he was extroverted and sociable and made friends easily frequently hosting dinner parties and barbecues which I think comes across in a lot of his escape he evidently worked well with people if he chose to yes hence starting his own escape committee because yes. he chose to do it that way but I think it's wonderful that we've got that good personal reference he retired to the Gold Coast in Queensland in the early 1980s and I've got here that he passed away in April 1994 in Brisbane a long and sound life mm. a very interesting life and possibly one of our most resourceful and determined escapers in many different ways well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.